Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. I first met Anthony Cronman 25 years ago, in 1994. Professor Cronman at the time was just beginning his decade-long run as Dean of Yale Law School in New Haven, Connecticut, just as I was entering the law school's first-year class. In an environment where students, and even some professors, dressed in a highly informal style that might charitably be called scholastic chic, Dean Cronman often stood out for the distinguished way he presented himself. During my three years in New Haven, I regarded him as the ultimate embodiment of the elite Ivy League law school establishment. But under that suave veneer, Dean Cronman, who is now Sterling Professor at Yale Law School, apparently has become something of an Ivy League rebel, or at least what passes for one in 2019. In his new book, The Assault on American Excellence, Professor Cronman offers a sustained critique of university culture. What's more, he warns that the mistakes being made on campus may have serious repercussions not only for students, but for democracy as a whole. At the heart of Professor Cronman's critique, which he develops through classic works by such luminaries as founding father John Adams, is the idea that halls of great learning, like our political system, require some kind of hierarchy as a means to identify truth and virtue. In recent years, however, the leveling effect of mob-based politics and activism has made it impossible to create what Professor Cronman calls a needed and natural aristocracy. Last week, Professor Cronman spoke to me from New Haven, Connecticut about his book and about how times have changed since the days in the mid-1990s when I roamed his hallways. Here are excerpts from our discussion. There have been a lot of books documenting the threat to academic freedom, and the coddling of students by administrators. What makes your book different seems to be the way you connect this to the foundations of American democracy. Could you give listeners a thumbnail sketch of how that connection works? Sure. I I think that what's distinctive about my book is precisely what you've just said, that I try to put events on campus into a wider political and historical frame, and to see them against the background of the the much larger democratic civilization in which our universities and colleges sit. So here's, I think, a simple way of explaining what I'm up to in the book. Our American democracy, which is a great, uh, uh, raucous, sprawling experiment in self-government, rests on a fundamental commitment to the principle of equality, famously expressed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence and reiterated over and over again over the course of our very long history. Our colleges and universities rest in the most basic sense on a different principle, not the principle of equality, but the idea of excellence in a variety of different endeavors and the pursuit of the truth. Truth and excellence are not democratic values. We don't decide what's true in a particular inquiry by asking for a show of of hands. So at, at the most elemental level, there is a tension. It might even be a contradiction between the principle of democratic equality on which our political civilization rests and the ideals of excellence and truth that are at the center of academic life. And there is a tension between them, for for sure. But my uh, book uh, contends that a rigorous introduction to the discipline of truth-seeking and the cultivation of the habit of looking for and admiring excellence of achievement, those habits and that discipline 
help to secure the habits of open-mindedness and of independent judgment, which are essential to being a good and effective citizen and leader in the wider democracy. So there's a tension between these two sets of values, democracy and equality on the one hand, excellence and truth on the other, but a training in the latter is an important preparation for life as a responsible citizen in the rollicking democracy that exists outside the walls of our colleges and universities. My own experience on an Ivy League campus was at Yale Law School when when you were dean. Even socially, I experienced the tension between people who were very proud of the fact that they were at this elite institution, but also class conscious and perhaps even slightly mortified that their mere presence there might somehow be violating this egalitarian ideal. Sometimes they had very humble roots and they had friends or relatives who weren't so lucky in life. Is it possible that some of the fixations of the modern academy are an outgrowth of this identity-based tension that people are feeling when they're on campus? Well, let me say two things in response to that. First of all, at the Yale Law School and other elite institutions like it, many students are quite properly, passionately committed to improving the world at large, to making it a better, fairer, more just place. This is certainly true here at the uh, at the at the law school. Most of my students have a have a passion for justice, and they're eager when they graduate and get out in the world to do what they can to advance it in one way or another. Um, Of course, at the same time, they recognize that they are at an elite institution, which is highly uh, selective and quite remote from the rough-and-tumble precincts of democratic life. Um, It's a very special place. It's an enclave of excellence, and they recognize that. And I think, as you suggest, John, there is, for some students, an internal tension, psychological tension, if you want to call it that, between their own uh, sense of themselves as members of this very elite institution, which they've fought hard to get into, and they're not ashamed of, except that at some level, for some of them, it perhaps causes a little awkwardness or embarrassment when they think about their democratic egalitarian commitments. I guess I think that the, the tension, that, that tension is probably uh, irremediable. It can't be removed. I wouldn't know how to, to go about doing so. Um, but I, I think it can be a source of provocation and stimulation and a tonic rather than a destructive poison, by which I mean um, students here uh, and at institutions like it, ought to be asked what they mean to make of this elite opportunity they've been given. How should they use this very short time that they're here at the law school or in college? How should they use this very short time to equip themselves for a life of uh, intellectual pleasure, of cultural refinement, of moral commitment, and to uh, think of this uh, elite moment in their lives as, as, an, as an extraordinary uh, opportunity which they should seize and make the most of rather than slinking along under a cloud, worrying that well, maybe they really don't deserve it, they shouldn't be here, and so on and so forth. I think most students at the Yale Law, many, I won't say most, many students at the Yale Law School, many students at our elite colleges and universities, in their heart of hearts, worry that they don't really, that they haven't earned their place in, that they don't deserve to be there. I felt that way as a freshman at Williams College. What was I doing there? I was a you know, uh, just a schlep from Southern California and surrounded by kids I assumed were much more talented and uh, and better equipped than I. And 
you know, at the time I thought that was an unusual feeling and I've discovered in the years since that it's very widespread. Imposter syndrome writ large, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Do you say that you don't know how to address this dissonance that students feel? And yet, in the case of John Adams, it seems like Adams himself wrestled with this sort of thing. Can you explain to me how, in his mind, he was able to reconcile the very genuine need that the United States and other societies have for a kind of intellectual aristocracy, and you're not shy about using the word aristocracy, mm. with the the foundational ideals of America, which were very egalitarian, because Adams wasn't just talking about this in the abstract sense. He was looking around and, and asking, how do we pick the leaders of this society? What criteria do we use? And he acknowledged that, to some extent, there had to be some hierarchy of, of virtue. I think that was the word he used. Adams was, of course, in a very basic sense, a Democrat. He believed in popular self-government. Uh, he was very much opposed to the English model in which a small number of hereditary nobles called the shots and ran the show. He was very much against that. But he was also mindful of what he perceived to be the dangers of popular rule, the enthusiasm of crowds, the, uh, the ever-present temptation of a popular majority to seize the day and expropriate or exploit uh, the mind, the voting my, minority. He was very uh, crucial, critically aware of that. And like uh, James Madison, who more than anyone else should be credited with the design of our constitutional system of government, believed, hoped that mechanisms of government could be designed that would preserve the, the basic principles of, of democratic self-rule, but provide what might be called a, a filtration mechanism or a set of such mechanisms that would increase the likelihood that wiser, more virtuous, more far-sighted individuals, men, of course it was only men at the time, would be selected by the people as their representatives. Madison's 10th Federalist paper, a famous document, is a wonderful illustration of this. It's a very complex essay, and there's a great deal going on in it. But one of the, the things that Madison says, he almost takes it for granted in a way that today seems uh, perhaps a little over-optimistic, is that by spreading uh, the principle of representation over such a vast territory, that the chances of the people electing the, the best and most virtuous individuals as their representatives would actually be increased. And Adams, John Adams, was very interested in the ways in which the machinery of constitutional government, the detail, the little, little balance wheels, the complicated system of offsetting checks and balances could be used to promote that result. There are, you know, lots of different aspects of this. The the role of the judiciary is one. The the place of the Senate is another. And the, the sheer extent of the uh, republic is a, a third. Adams and Jefferson are wonderfully contrasting figures in this regard, because Adams, of course, was Anglophilic, Jefferson Francophilic. In the late 1790s, they found themselves fierce opponents on opposite sides of the question of whether America should lean English or French. Uh, and this was reflected in many, many different aspects of their behavior and their, their beliefs. But they shared something fundamental in common. Jefferson was more sanguine about popular self-rule than Adams was, but he too believed in the importance of what he called, what Jefferson called, a natural aristocracy. That's a term that both Adams and Jefferson used quite freely and self-consciously without any embarrassment or awkwardness. 
Uh, today, of course, the, the phrase it has to slink into the room and, uh, and hide its head in shame. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was just to remind our readers that, that this phrase, however embarrassed it may be today, has an old and, and, and quite honorable tradition that carries us back to our uh, founders and to Adams and Jefferson in particular, who, as I say, were on opposite sides of many questions, but at the end of the day, both believed in the existence of a natural aristocracy, the essential role of education in finding and cultivating America's natural aristocrats and preparing them for a leading role in the new system of government that the two of them had had a hand in designing. A great simplification of their beliefs and perhaps of some of the argument in your book is that some degree of intellectual aristocracy must be combined with a political and, and moral realization of the fundamental equivalence of people as human beings. Yes, I would strongly endorse that. And I would say the latter isn't just a, uh, a concession of necessity, that we have to accept democracy and uh, equality because nothing else will work in, in practical terms. I think that is true. But the democratic principle of, uh, of, the, of the universal equality of all human beings expresses a morally noble and inspiring ideal in its own right. It's just that it's not the only ideal, and there is another also worthy of respect with which it stands in a relation of some considerable tension, as we were discussing earlier. How much of that argument is connected to something that was central to, I think it was your immediately previous book, which if I, I remember correctly, it was... Uh, Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan, right. which, which I think you, you trace some of these ideas, or at least the moral precepts by which we live life and organize our society, to foundational, either pre-Christian or non-Christian ideas. Did, did that book, to some extent, set the template for some of the ideas you're describing here? It's it certainly connected to them. Uh, but I'll give you just one example, which brings us back to America. I'm thinking of Walt Whitman with whom I conclude Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. My last chapter, two chapters, are on Walt Whitman. And one of the things I say about Whitman is that he was both America's most enthusiastic Democrat and an aristocrat. The democratic side of Whitman is obvious. Anyone who has read even a few pages of his poetry will recognize that. Every human being uh, is to Whitman infinitely interesting. He wants to be everyone. He wants to experience their life as they feel it, their, their pains and, and pleasures. He's on the road. He's looking. Every American he bumps into is a source of endless wonder and celebration for him. That's the democratic side. But Whitman also says, and, and says more than once, everyone is divine, everyone, that's the egalitarian principle, but only the poet knows it. It takes a very special soul to grasp the divinity in ordinary people and ordinary things. I'm not sure you're allowed to say that anymore, though, or at least that's politically, that's a very Ooh, difficult thing well, to say Whitman now. Whitman says it over and over again, and he is our American poet. I think many people would accept that because they see and value the democratic side, as I do. Oh, I, I think it's true. I just don't think you're allowed to say it. <laughs> well, I've, there it is. You know, I, I mean, I love Walt Whitman. I, I absolutely, I'm teaching a seminar in the law school this semester called American Ideals, Puritans to Lincoln. And we cover a lot of ground and read lots of, lots of uh, people. But we end with Walt Whitman and the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass, in part because I am myself so fascinated by this tension between the profoundly democratic strain 
in Whitman poetry on the one hand, and his unashamed embrace of the idea that some human beings, he's thinking of himself, of the poets, of the great oracular poets who speak the spirit of the nation, that they stand on a on a on a high higher plane. And in his famous prose essay, Democratic Vistas, which he published uh, late in his his life, he says, before in earlier ages in previous civilizations, it was the it was the politicians, uh, the kings, and and then the uh, and then the and then the congressmen and the the senators, who were the 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 chiefs and rulers who who gave direction to the society as a whole. But now he says comes the age of the poet, and the poet will be what they had been in the past, the one who shows the way, who almost with a kind of pro- prophetic uh, urgency, points out where the country is going and what it ought to be. Hence the title, Democratic Vistas. Who sees those but the poet? That's Whitman's main point. You may think he's kind of cracked to believe that it's the poet who occupies this position of, of, of vision and extraordinary insight. But Still, that is a position that Whitman thinks has to be occupied by someone or other, and the time has come for the poet to take his turn or her turn. We'd have to include Emily Dickinson in this uh, very small and select group, too, when we start talking about it. Your suggestion that we've lost sight of the need of some kind of intellectual aristocracy uh, can be interpreted as a critique of both left-wing and right-wing populism. Uh, is that what you intended? I suppose. I published an essay in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks back uh, titled The Downside of Diversity, and it was it was not a, a literal excerpt from my book, but it was based on the argument in one of the chapters of my book, which deals with diversity. And I spoke in this essay about the ways in which the morality of diversity and inclusion, as it has come to be understood on our campuses, compromises the search for truth and how important it is to hold to the rigorous and self-critical requirements of that ideal, the ideal of truth-seeking. And in just in passing, I said toward the end of the essay, the, the need to hold on to this is especially important in an age in which, at a moment in our history, at which the president of the United States is so visibly and continually disrespectful of these norms of truthfulness himself. And I got a, I got a lot of letters from people who said, gosh, I loved your piece. Uh, this was just great until you got to your snarky line about the president. And why did you have to throw that in? Was that just a bit of virtue signaling to ensure that your colleagues at Yale wouldn't toss you out and declare you insane? And um, I wrote back to some of them and said, look, if you are concerned with truthfulness, then you have reason to be concerned about what's going on on our campuses, but you have equal reason at least to be concerned about what's going on in the Oval Office. And for what it's worth, that's my view. I am uh, a lifelong member of the Democratic Party. I've voted for every Democratic candidate for president since I could vote. I will certainly vote for a Democrat this next time around. I hope it's one who's a little closer to the center of the party where that's where I put my nickel. And I really don't like the populist dimension aspect of the Trump phenomenon. It really bothers me deeply. And I think you're right to suggest that my opposition to some of the things that are going on on campus today reflects a similar antagonism to concern about populism of an intellectual kind. Mobs come in many different forms. I I really don't like them. Madison says in one of the Federalist papers, even if the jury that convicted Socrates and sent him to death 
it was a jury of about 500 Athenian citizens, even if it had been composed of individuals, every one of whom was a Socrates, it would still have been a mob. And behind that remark, you, you can easily detect Madison's deep uneasiness about big groups, what we sometimes today describe as populism. It's an overused term, but there it is. So I really don't like it much wherever it appears. Right now in our political life, yeah, there's a lot of it to be seen on both the left and the right, and there's a lot of it to be seen on campus as well, and I think this is bad for America. Well, you begin the book, in fact, with what could be described as a mob of Socrateses who manifested themselves on Yale campus in 2015. I think many of our listeners will know a little bit about what happened. There was a controversy involving a professor, I believe her name was Erica Christakis, Mm -hmm. and her husband, Nicholas Christakis, both acclaimed academics, quite renowned. We don't have to go into the details of it, but there was an actual physical confrontation that took place. It's on YouTube, where students, dozens of them, if not hundreds, confronted Nicholas Christakis, and it did seem like a mob. There was, there was no violence per se, but it did have a mob-like flavor to it. Mm-hmm. You, of course, are not just an author, you're a professor at Yale Law School. The campus can be a small place. I'm wondering how these events, it's now four years ago, how they affected the social fabric that must exist within the academic community at Yale. Uh, were friendships affected by this? Was there a sense of solidarity with the Christakis's? It's a difficult question to answer. There were some, perhaps many, among my colleagues on the Yale faculty who who felt uh, sympathetic to the Christakis's and abhorred what had happened. There were others who were less disturbed and and much more sympathetic to the students and their complaints. I, I would say, though, that those of us, I include myself in this group, who thought that what happened was a a real violation of the norms and spirit of the place. Most of us kept pretty quiet. The atmosphere was such that it was difficult, not impossible, but difficult to speak out and say, this is wrong, it shouldn't happen, and and we need to strongly reaffirm our collective commitment to norms of, of, of free expression. I don't fault the students so much. They're they're young. They're they they're impassioned. Their passion is a good thing, a wonderful thing. Some of them got carried away. Things like this happen. I do fault the leaders of the university for waiting too long to come forward to the Christakis's defense, and when they did, for not being as bold and emphatic in their defense of them as I believe they ought to have been. And that that created the sense among some that the leaders of the university don't have our back and that you really are exposed, uh, vulnerable, if you go out into the open and, for example, say the sorts of things that I've said in my book. I don't want to make too much of your age, but, you know, you started your career in the 1970s. You're, like me, you're not in the bloom of youth. Would you have been able to write this book and maintain your career uh, if you were, say, in your 20s, your 30s? It, it, it obviously um, would be much more difficult for a younger person in that position to say what I've said. Um, Partly, maybe mainly for the reason that you suggest, John, that it just, these are, you know, these are unfashionable ideas and however many people are thinking them quietly on their own to say them out loud in public, that's, you know, you're kind of taking a, taking a, a risk. But there's another reason, which may be in some ways even deeper. And that is that, Young scholars are not expected to pronounce on large topics that fall outside the narrow range of their 
academic expertise as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old working your way up the, the ladder. You're expected to devote yourself principally, if not exclusively, to the pursuit of knowledge in a very well-defined and narrow specialty. And this book is not a not a, a a specialized work in that sense. It's about education in the broadest terms. And for a young person to write uh, about broad topics like like this, that that puts in jeopardy their reputation as credible scholars within a particular field or or a, or a discipline. Now, I guess I would say at at my <laughs> advanced age and 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 given the position of comparative freedom that I enjoy, I'm no longer the dean so I don't have to speak on behalf of the institution. I have tenure. I'm still teaching full-time and loving it and plan to continue. But no one is going to take my tenure away or make me an outcast for saying what I've, I've said, or maybe if they do, but it, that doesn't really affect me in a concrete way. So I have this freedom that others don't. And given that I do, wouldn't it be irresponsible of me not to use it? Actually, you talk about the ability to write a book like this as being somewhat the prerogative of, of someone who's older, but Yale Law School has something of a, a tradition of professors writing these these generalized arguments about the state of our society. I'm thinking of, of Stephen Carter, mm-hmm. and more recently, uh, Amy Chua, yeah. who was a professor, and I think still is a professor at Yale Law School. Uh, her first book, I think, was called World on Fire. How do you think those affected the career trajectories of those colleagues? Uh, the, the, in, the particular individuals you mentioned, uh, Steve Carter and Amy Chua, already had uh, uh, secure reputations. Uh, they had tenure um, on the faculty and they had and they had secure reputations in the in the world of higher education. When they wrote their more uh, popular and provocative books. So they enjoyed a measure of the same freedom that I certainly do now and they used it. I think I would say about the Yale Law School in particular that we are somewhat, and I really want to stress somewhat, less vulnerable to the forces of specialization that have swept over higher education in general. Personally, the fact that I divide my teaching between the law school and an undergraduate program for freshmen called Directed Studies, which is an old-fashioned great books program of, of the kind that once existed at many, many schools, but is now a relative rarity. That also contributes to my interest in questions of a very general kind and my lack of embarrassment in speaking and writing about them. You've taught contracts for many years, and you're a legal expert. The fact that you do that and you also teach this great books program. To a certain extent, you're an archetype of the Yale Law School professor. There were so many courses at Yale Law School when I was there that were like, I don't know, poetry in the law or policy in the law and such. The downside of that, of course, is that when I actually practiced law for a few years, I ended up asking my colleagues who went to places like Brooklyn Law School to actually help me with legal problems because they they knew the actual law sometimes much better than I did. Um, is there a trade-off that, I mean, this is sort of an open secret among people who take the bar, that the people who go to maybe more accessible law schools just actually know the black letter law better than Yale Law School graduates? I think that's um, a myth, a canard. It's certainly true for me. <laughs> I mean, I Well, I'm ask- not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you who your teachers were, but I'll, I'll say this. I love teaching contracts. It's a, a course that I have taught pretty regularly, the introductory first-term contracts class, for many, many, many years. And I teach it uh, in a, in a, in a straight-up way. Uh, we read a bunch of cases. We try to piece together from the cases that we're reading the outlines of the of the doctrine of the American law of contracts, 
and uh, we're really down in the weeds. But every single case that I teach, I approach as a mini novella. There's more going on in it. Of course, there's the doctrine and the 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 um, uh, the the specifically legal questions that are raised uh, by it. But there's there are also the questions about what, what was it that led these parties to make the contract they did, and then why did it go sour, and what can we learn about their unhappy experience about contracting in general, and why do people make contracts in the first place? What is what is the what is it that moves them to try to reach out and get a stranglehold on the future in the way that contracts at least attempt to do? Th- those are, I don't know, how would you describe them? philosophical, literary, historical questions of the first magnitude, and they all come up in the most natural way talking about the cases. But the focus is on the cases, the law, the doctrine, and I, my hope is that the students in my contracts class, by the time we're done, they will leave loving the law of contracts, fascinated with its ins and outs, its twists and turns, all of the doctrinal complexities, fascinated with all of that, but but confident that uh, a student of the law of contracts is uh, exposed to the full human comedy in all its uh, depth and grandeur and idiocy. That's what the law of contracts is. I did want to briefly touch on something you spoke about earlier. Uh, because I, I wanted to make sure that listeners didn't get the wrong impression. When you mentioned that you wrote this Wall Street Journal piece critiquing the fixation on diversity on campus, uh, and of course there's a chapter in your book about it, let's be clear, you're not critiquing the objective of diversity per se. You're critiquing some of the knock-on effects it's had in regard to academic culture, correct? Exactly. What I try to explain in the chapter is that diversity in higher education was embraced um, with enthusiasm as a, a workaround after the Supreme Court of the United States had told our colleges and universities that they could not employ specifically, deliberately race-conscious measures in their admissions programs in an effort to redress a glaring social imbalance. I thought that decision, the decision in the Bakke case was wrong. As I explained in the book, I would have voted to support affirmative action, race-based affirmative action programs for some significant period of time. Just to interrupt, for for non-American listeners, this is the Supreme Court decision in the Bakke case in the 1970s, yes? That's right, yes. Bakke against the University of California was decided in 1978. And in that case, the Supreme Court said uh, the University of California cannot employ a set-aside program in its admissions uh, system, which deliberately set aside, I think it was 10% of the entering uh, spots at the University of California at Davis's medical school for applicants from several identified minority groups. The, the, The medical school was proceeding on the very reasonable assumption that these groups are underrepresented in the medical profession, in its own student body. Their underrepresentation is a consequence of uh, historical, institutionalized injustices of all different kinds. And to repair the damage, it was appropriate for the school to take an affirmative step by giving applicants from these groups a special advantage, a leg up in the admissions process. I thought that made sense. It was morally and politically sound, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do it. But if you uh, uh, if you say that in order to promote the intellectual uh, life of your school, you need to uh, construct, build, admit a very diverse class, and that that means giving some weight to diversity of race and ethnicity, along with other things in your admissions program, well, then you can do it. And of course, every college 
what president and dean understood from that point on how the game was to be played they wanted to have a racially and ethnically diverse student body they couldn't do it directly so they had to do it under the rubric of diversity of experience of ideas and the like in his opinion in the baki case justice lewis powell suggested that there may be in some cases a very close connection between a student's point of view, values, experiences, judgments, and the like, on the one hand, and his or her race or ethnicity on the other. And that fusion of values, perspectives, experiences with race and gender, that came into the academy. And it's the fusion of those two ideas which has done, I argue in my book, so much damage to the culture of higher learning. So it is you might say, I think your phrase was a knock-on uh, effect. The original motive was not just benign, it was admirable. And I say that in my book and explain why. But it has had consequences that no one at the time could have foreseen, and that have been, in, in part at least, quite destructive. And if, if my memories of law school are correct, I think that because of the strange arithmetic of the way that decision was done, it was essentially the opinion of, was it one judge who who more or less set out what turned out to be definitive form, the diversity doctrine? Am I remembering that correctly? Justice Powell cast the deciding vote in the case. There were four justices who were in favor of upholding the University of California's affirmative action program. There were four who were against it, um, Powell was against upholding it in its existing form, and so the program was struck down. He was the fifth vote in favor of striking the program down as it existed at the time. But in his opinion, after having explained why he agreed that explicitly race-based uh, schemes um, are, amount to a quota and are in, impermissible under the 14th Amendment, and the Civil Rights Act of, I think it was 1965, 66. Um, after explaining all of that, he then went on in the second part of his opinion to say, but you know, um, uh, uh, if, if what you're after is diversity and you feel you need to take race and ethnicity into account up to a point in order to achieve the diversity you're after, well, that's kosher. That's okay. It can't be a, 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 a full-on quota, but it, it gives you some latitude to give weight to race and ethnicity, which the first part of his opinion seemed to rule out completely. So that opened the door. And then the question was, how far can you go without the weight that you give to race and ethnicity amounting to an impermissible quota? And schools have been dancing around that uh, ever since for the past 40 years. My Tenure at Yale Law School between 1994 and 1997 coincided with your first years as dean. And uh, as you no doubt remember, there was a controversy surrounding diversity issues at the time. In particular, there were people who protested that the proportion of blacks and women who were admitted to the prestigious Yale Law Journal, which I think you edited uh, or helped edit back in the 1970s when you were a student, uh, that, that this proportion of women and, and blacks was below the baseline proportion within the school. And without getting into the, the details of it, I remember that there was a sort of town hall meeting in the largest classroom, and people were having debates about it, and things got heated. And I remember at the time it was very tense and uncomfortable, and yet in retrospect, I feel like it was much more civil and perhaps even more productive than the equivalent kind of discussions that are taking place on campus now, perhaps because social media allows those discussions to go on 24-7 uh, instead of in a, in a self-contained way. Well, that's, of course, that's true. And the, uh, you know, the, the world of social media act as a terrible accelerant. Uh, um, uh, and, and these little brush fires um, ex explode and... Uh, and and become uncontainable. Uh, I can give you an, an perhaps even a, a, 
better example of this than the one that you've just mentioned, although I'll come back to it in just a, a second. Um, it used to be when I was the dean uh, back in the late 90s and, and early years of the, of the new century that we had had it something called the wall. Um, and the wall referred to an actual physical wall in the law school building, down on the ground floor in the main uh, corridor. There was a long space that was devoted to um, the to free expression. And students or faculty could post whatever they wanted. There was only one requirement, and that was, with a, a few exceptions, that anything you put up, you had to take responsibility for, meaning you had to sign your name and saying, this is me speaking. Here's, here's something I have to say. Uh, the, one, the main exception was if a student is criticizing a member of the faculty, they don't have to sign their name, which I think everyone agreed probably made sense. Uh, or if they're criticizing the dean, they don't have to identify themselves. Otherwise, you've got to put your name to it. Um, and things would go up. And, and people would add their own little thoughts and criticisms. And sometimes, you know, these would go on for pages and kind of curl around in a, in a serpentine trail of papers that was often very difficult to follow. But people would come and they would read them earnestly and they would be at the wall. And sometimes they would argue at the wall. You remember, you, if you remember the wall, you remember that whole... I remember it well. It was a kind of weird mashup between social media and uh, like a medieval town square. Uh, yes, but my, my point is it was more the latter than the former. Um, the, the physical constraint, uh, which, the, which limitations of, of size imposed had an effect, the fact that you had to identify yourself, that, that the fact that p people had to come and, and stand there and read it uh, and if they put something up, they had to post it in the presence of others, of their classmates, of their teachers. Uh, all of that had a modulating effect, which was lost when the wall went virtual, as it did some years ago. There really is no physical wall anymore. There's something called the wall, but it's a, you know, it's a listserv. And uh, anybody can get on it and pretty much say what they want and it has had all kinds of consequences, some of which are not are benign, others are probably positive, but some I think are uh, destructive and and that has made it more difficult to maintain and for the dean to support and manage if that's not a terrible word to use the spirit of community and solidarity within the building. Have you had any pushback from within the Yale Law School community since the publication of your book recently? Uh, well, it's coming. There has been a, I would say, fiercely critical, hostile reaction to what I say in the book about Yale's decision to rename Calhoun College, which was a painful episode for the whole university. Uh, one of the subjects I address in my book is the passion for renaming and removal that has swept across American campuses in the last half dozen years or so, renaming monuments, memorials, tearing statues down and the like, because they honor individuals who by our present lights are thought to be or have been dishonorable and, to, and who stand for things that, that we now deeply disapprove of. At Yale, uh, this issue came, this general question came to a head in the year-long debate over whether the university should rename Calhoun College, one of its residential colleges. Uh, Calhoun College was named after John C. Calhoun, an American uh, statesman, politician uh, of the first half of the 19th century, one of the most prominent and influential figures in American public life between, say, 1820 and 1850. He was vice president of the United States. He served as secretary of state. He was in the Senate for many years. Uh, he was a political philosopher of some stature, and he was also an ardent defender of the institution of slavery, which he 
justified on the grounds, it seems shocking today, that slavery is good not only for the master, but for the slave as well. Um, that slavery is a positive good for all concerned. So Yale had a college named after John Calhoun, who had graduated from Yale in, I don't remember when it was, I think 1803, 1804, something like that, early in the, very early in the 19th century. Some students said, you know, this is terrible. The name has to be changed. How can we honor such a man with this legacy? And others felt, I was in this second group, that it was important to preserve the name, not as an homage to John Calhoun, but as a painful but public acknowledgement of Yale's own commitment to face the worst in its past and to live in the light of the truth. That view lost. The first view prevailed. The college was renamed after a long and drawn out process. And in my book, I describe the process and criticize it in some detail. And those who were involved in it, who sat on the committees, who uh, who led the charge, who had a hand in the renaming, are furious at me for what I say and believe that I've misrepresented events as they unfolded and mischaracterized their views and so on and so forth. And, and they're going to make their views public soon, I know, um, I've been told. And and th- that's a, you know, a local Yale concern that may be of less interest to those outside of this little small enclave, but it's pretty intense here, and I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for it. But nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, My hope is that with respect to this issue and others, what I have said will put some questions on the table that have been there but suppressed for a while and open the conversation up and air it out in a way that I think will be good for everyone. Painful and and maybe especially so for me, but but good for the university as a whole and for higher education generally. That's my hope. You know, if I if I if I didn't have it, I don't know why I would have written the book. Anthony Cronman is a professor at Yale Law School a former dean of Yale Law School, and the author of The Assault on American Excellence. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you. Great talking to you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.